again and again. What we need most is not to just stop giving in to this sin, but a different functional perception of God and a renewed way of relating with him. Our author this morning, the Apostle Peter, he made the good confession that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. He heard Jesus declare that flesh and blood did not reveal this to him, but his Father in heaven. Upon this truth that Jesus would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Peter himself on the day of Pentecost preached the gospel and 3,000 were added to the church that day. I'm sure no one was more amazed in that moment than Peter was. He saw firsthand the power of words, of divinely inspired, spirit-empowered preaching and teaching. And Peter also knew the sting of rebuke and correction. When he tried to convince Jesus that it was not God's will for him to die, Jesus responded with, Get behind me, Satan. Not the most flattering estimation of his counsel. And years later, Paul needed to confront Peter to his face because Peter was giving in to the influence of the Judaizers by not eating with the Gentile believers, functionally denying the transforming power of the gospel. Peter knew firsthand how harmful and destructive false ideas and false teachings could be. What we receive, what we believe matters. As we transition into chapter 2 in our study of 2 Peter, we are confronted with the troubling reality that not everyone finishes the walk of faith well. That God's judgment is not idle. It is unwavering. And it is effective. Peter will spend most of the rest of this letter combating claims of false teachers. So let's read together now. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1-10. through 10. The false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald 
of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly? If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly? And if he rescued Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. The main idea we want to see this morning is that false teachers promise false prophets. So hold fast to the God who knows how to rescue. False teachers promise false prophets. So hold fast to the God who knows how to rescue. The first thing we want to see from this passage is that false teachers promise false prophets. What are some of the things that the false teachers were going to come and lure people with? What did Peter have to say? Well, there would be heresy, but there would be sensuality. That's a theme that runs throughout. There would be greed. There would be lust of defiling passions. There would be despising authority. These are some of the categories that Peter gives of what motivates false teachers and draws others to themselves. And isn't it funny how a list with greed and sensuality, lust and rejecting authority still resonate 2,000 years later? Just as timely as when this was written. All sorts of voices want to instruct and convince us how we should think and act, what we should believe about God, about ourselves, and about others. It's not just vocational teachers and preachers, though that we are not exempt. Books and music, politicians and professors, TikTok and Facebook, television, radio, all are mediums from which a multitude of messages are constantly transmitted aiming to influence what comes into our minds when we think about God, when we think about each other, when we think about the world that he has made. Of course, teachings can be false because they are heretical and blatantly anti-God, anti-Christ in message. But those probably aren't the messages that we in the church are most drawn to. The world has plenty of false teachers, but Peter is warning the church here. We must be vigilant to guard against false teachers and teachings that often don't immediately display their danger to seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Peter warns that these false teachers will come from among you. 
others claiming to be followers of Jesus. They look and smell like genuine believers. Which is part of why so many follow after them. It would be nice to think that everyone with the label of Christian, whether a counselor or musician, politician or pastor, radio personality or author, family member on Facebook, or person sitting across from you dispensing advice, are all thoroughly biblical and gospel-centered. It would be nice to think that. But it would be foolish to think that. And potentially harmful. That doesn't mean that we need to be skeptical with everyone we talk and relate with, but we should be listening actively. We should be evaluating how their message, whether it's the out front message or the meaning behind the words, how it lines up with what God has revealed in Scripture, with who He has revealed Himself to be, with the way He wants His people to relate, the way He wants His world to function as the creator and maker of all things, as the one who has redeemed. How do the many messages we hear constantly line up and support or contradict his great themes and authority? We should be willing to receive or reject what we hear accordingly. Because Peter reminds us the stakes are incredibly high. Even from verse 1, he talks about denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And that would really be the ultimate false prophet to gain the whole world yet lose one's very soul. So Peter spends seven verses reminding his readers that whatever we gain apart from Christ is simply not worth it. Not for angels, not for those in Noah's day, nor Abraham's, nor for any of us for all eternity. False teachers promise false prophets. Second thing I want us to see from this passage is that false teachers will lead many astray. Peter uses these different phrases. False prophets arose among the people. There will be false teachers among you, secretly bringing in destructive heresies. Many will follow. Because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. They will exploit you. He's not just talking about this could potentially happen. He's letting us know dangers are out there. Even among us. Dangers arise. Are we on guard? Are we perceptive? Are we looking? Are we evaluating? Are we seeking to line things up with his character, with his word? These are 
strong words. Yet Peter isn't the only New Testament writer voicing these same concerns. Listen to how Paul exhorted the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. In verse 28, he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Two apostles raising the alarm about the dangers that arise within the church itself. Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. From among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away even the disciples after them. The New Testament writers proclaim the truth of God revealed through Christ, but they also warn that not everything spoken in Christ's name is initiated by His Spirit. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul writes, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder. For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness their end will correspond to their deeds. If Satan is described as an angel of light, do you think the way that he chooses to transmit his message will always be flagrant and abusively anti-God, anti-church, anti-family, etc.? Yes, those messages are definitely out there. And some of those messages have rather large followings in a world that is at its core opposed to the creator and king. But those aren't usually the messages that are going to directly manipulate and deceive the church. Instead, the enemy will often use much more subtle tactics and messaging like, did God really say He's been twisting God's word ever since the garden. Just because the Bible is quoted doesn't mean it is being used correctly or that your best interests are its motive. Peter isn't detailing here specific false teachings but warnings to be on guard. Even in the buckle of the Bible belt, the majority of messages we are constantly bombarded with are not necessarily gospel-centered, God-glorifying, or biblically accurate. God is love. 
so he wouldn't condemn anyone. God is good and loving, so what makes him happy is for you to find whatever makes you happy. You should be loved just the way you are. Why would you listen to anyone that would tell you there's something wrong with you? Jesus died to show you how valuable you are. So just relax. The greatest sin is not being true to yourself. Write your own story. Define your own meaning. It's not just the world proclaiming such heresies, half-truths, and blatant lies. The most dangerous wolves are often those dressed in sheep's clothing because they can gain an audience. But wolves aren't the only source of false teaching. False teaching can even come from an apostle. Peter, when not eating with the Gentile believers, was rebuked by Paul because Paul knew the danger wasn't just that Peter was wrong, but also because he was putting a false picture of the gospel on display for those Gentile believers. And other Jewish believers would be influenced to follow suit as well. What did Paul remind the Galatians of? Verse chapter 1, 8, he said, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. A title or position does not equate with unchecked authority or absolute truthfulness in everything that comes forth from one's mouth. Now there's a difference between being unwitting and being unaware of some of the things that we say that are incorrect and being deceptive or manipulative and I'm willing to venture that we've all believed and uttered untrue and unhelpful things about God. I'll be first to raise my hand in recognition. And I'm sure there's still more things that God has not revealed or corrected me on. Our confidence is that God knows how to judge justly and how to rescue those who are his. The question we want to be asking is what voices do we choose to listen to? Do we recognize that many are competing for our allegiance? That 90 minutes on a Sunday morning cannot practically compete with the 112 other waking hours in our week 
if what we view and listen to and are entertained by is all received unexamined. The third thing we want to see this morning is that God's judgment is not up for debate. And it's not in doubt either. God is not idle. He is not asleep in regards to what is going on in his world. Peter reminds us that God has shown throughout history that he is serious about sin and proclaimed a greater judgment that is still to come. Peter lists three examples here. He lists the angels, he lists the ancient world at the time of the flood and the immoral cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Time and again, God has shown he knows how to rescue his own while punishing the rebellious. One of the persistent things that people in every age like to forget or deny is the reality of coming judgment. The very idea of sin itself is unpopular, undesirable, because it requires judgment. It requires the balances to come to account. So instead, we recategorize ourselves as wounded or in need of education rather than preparing to stand before the judge of all the earth. And believers are not immune from such wishful thinking. It's always more appealing to pretend that my self-determination, my sin will have no negative consequences. But it's just not true. Judgment may not always be immediate, but it is guaranteed. God has promised that he as righteous judge will deal with every sin. No one's getting away with anything. And if we think we can persist in sinning just because we know that Jesus died for sin, we may not have experienced the actual new life and new relationship with him that transfers judgment from our account to his. He came to make us righteous, both legally and in the courtroom of heaven, as well as increasingly in our walk with him as we grow more like him by the power of his spirit. So those united with him no longer need fear judgment because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But if our lives do not give evidence of his presence and transformation, no one should cling to a false sense of assurance just because we know the facts of what he has done or spent a lot of time in Sunday school growing up. We must not entertain those that declare there is no judgment to come 
because a merciful and loving God would not subject his creation to such horrors. He subjected his own son to such horrors so that we would not have to endure them. But every sin will be given an account, will be dealt with either by us having it transferred to his account or bearing the penalty ourselves. David Helm writes, where in the world did you ever come up with the idea that God would not judge anyone? Biblical history is filled with historical events that confirm the opposite. God has always judged those who follow the ways of the world rather than the ways of his word. God's righteous judgment will descend to earth. Make no mistake. Do not be misled. Are you in danger of forgetting that God did not even spare the angels? Just like the days of Noah, the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, people today will continue to eat and drink, to marry and pursue the joys of life, oblivious and desperately, deliberately denying the wrath to come until it's too late. We need to be reminded that God is not idle. His judgment is certain and that the Lord knows how to rescue. Fourth thing we want to see this morning is that the righteous are those that run to Christ for rescue. Again, Dane Ortland writes, the Christian life, our growth in Christ is nothing other than the lifelong deconstruction of what we naturally think and assume and the reconstruction of truth through the Bible. The Bible re-educates us. The Bible makes sages out of fool. It corrects us. Do we come to God's word and the preaching of his word aware that we need it to shape and teach and correct us? Or are we just looking for a daily pat on the back and some weekly inspiration? Do we assume that we have life together and simply need an occasional spiritual tune-up? Or do we see this as the only way we can be who he has called us to be? What conduits are you placing yourself under to be continually, ongoingly washed and refreshed with his word? What contrary or undermining messages do you willingly give ear to? What subtle messages are you realizing don't have your ultimate good at heart? Are there ways that you're being exploited that God would open your eyes to? 
Are we more drawn to those messages that want us to focus on our suffering or Christ's? That proclaim that he is enough or that we are? Are there steps that you need to take to turn down the volume or eliminate certain voices altogether? Are there practical things you can do to turn up or get more of good reconstructing voices? I'll be honest, I, I struggle with this designation of, of Lot as righteous. Clearly, Peter has some insight that I lack. As he highlights how tormented Lot was by the sin and deprivation around him. My bent is to assume that Lot knew what was there when he chose the land that he did. When Abraham said, choose which way you'll go. That he chose to live in Sodom, to set up camp there. That he continued to live there, knowing it was an unsafe place, not only for travelers, but probably not very good for his own family and even his own soul. I mean, the fact that he was willing to allow the men of Sodom to do horrific things to his daughters when the angels arrived posing as visitors, I have no category for. His wife did not heed the angel's warning and was turned to salt. And later, Lot's daughters got him drunk so that they could continue their line with him incestuously, creating the Moabite and Ammonite tribes. Let's just say, I don't see Lot making the short list. Many elder or deacon candidate searches. Yet Peter is holding him up as a righteous man, distressed and tormented by his surroundings. How easily I forget that righteousness isn't ultimately a measure of the purity of one's motives, deeds, or behavior, but the result of a relationship with the Savior. I need the Word to correct me, to remind me I'm not righteous by anything I do or the things that I don't do that I despise in someone else. I'm righteous only by being united with Jesus who has taken my sin upon himself, suffered and died in my place so that I could be declared what I am not in experience yet. Righteous before God. Neither Noah nor Lot were perfect men. Each have unflattering accounts related to too much wine and the behavior of their children. 
But when others refused rescue, Lot and Noah and their families each trusted what God said they needed and provided for them. They believed the word of the Lord and experienced the salvation that only God could provide. Friends, in that way, we must be just like them. There is no other hope for you and for me. We need that same salvation. Our righteousness is never based on our perfect obedience, but Christ alone. He came to accomplish what none of us ever have or ever could. The Lord's rescue of us is not because of our goodness or perfection, but because of our need. And it comes as we submit to him as the only solution for our great need. No one is so bad that they are beyond his ability to save And no one is so good that they don't need a savior. If you're unaware, then your situation is worse off than you think. But Christ's salvation is better than you've ever imagined. Whether you realize and rejoice in that reality or reject and replace it with an attractive false gospel, depends largely on which voices you are listening to and what teachers and teachings you take to heart. The ushers can go ahead and begin to pass the elements. The band can come forward.